prayer is not a, a question of coming to God to try to convince him or to beg him or to somehow change his mind. It is something that he says he is going to do, but it needs to be claimed through prayer. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Beaufort, South Carolina's Community Bible Church. We're presenting a biographical series on the prophet Elijah from 1st and 2nd Kings. We've so far seen this mighty man of God following all of God's directives, from moving east of the Jordan, then moving again to Zarephath, where God does two amazing miracles through the prophet, then confronting King Ahab and having a fiery showdown with the prophets of Baal. Today we continue the last six verses of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, and we find God telling the prophet that he's bringing an end to the three-year-long drought. You can see this morning the topic is Elijah, the prayer warrior. Now when we study Elijah's life, we must never forget what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. That includes Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, and yes, indeed, 1 Kings. Remember, the book of 1 Kings is not simply a record of what God has said. It's a record of what God is saying. And sometimes as Christians, we mistakenly think that the Old Testament is for another era, that it's for another people. And we could not be further from the truth. Paul said to the church of Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times, you see those words, earlier times? That's what we refer to as the Tanakh, that is the Old Testament. One of my commitments from this pulpit is to teach the whole council of Scripture. And so usually we do a New Testament study. Right now we're doing an Old Testament study, then a New Testament study, then an Old Testament study. Because the whole of Scripture is instructive. So he goes for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The earlier times, again, is this old covenant, Old Testament error. And he's reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not exhaust itself in that time frame. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God moved upon the writers of the Old Testament, not just for the people of their day, but for the people of our day. And may I remind you that Elijah belonged certainly to an elite group of prophets. And he was one of the few men of God in the Old Testament that God did the miraculous through. Most of the great men, most of the prophets never did a miracle in their entire lives. It's just on the great ganglions of biblical history that God performed miracles through Moses, through Joshua, hundreds of years went by, then through Elijah, then his protege, Elisha, and then until, not again until the time of Christ. And so we look at this, and he's an incredible man, but remember, this was written for our instruction. And I believe God wants to teach us from Elijah's life about how he prayed so that we can apply it to our lives today. And I believe with all my heart that Community Bible Church is no better than what we are as a church through prayer. We're no greater, no more useful to God than what we are by prayer. And a prayer life of a church is made up of its individual members. So don't ask the question, is CBC a praying church? Ask the question, am I a praying member of that church? 
Now, let me ask you a question. If you could ask the Lord Jesus for something today, what would you ask him for in the spiritual realm? Would you ask him to make you a better Bible teacher, maybe a greater evangelist, maybe a better servant, maybe a better giver? Well, on one occasion, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he responded with an undeniable promise about asking and seeking and knocking. He said this in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. When you ask, that speaks of your desire. When you seek, that speaks of your direction. But when you knock, that speaks of your determination. And God wants to bring together our asking and our seeking with determination. And what we find here in 1 Kings 18 is a man who is determined to pray. He was a man who walked with God. And there are many lessons that we can learn from his life. He's a gutsy kind of guy. I look forward to meeting Elijah. What a profound impact he had on his nation. So if you were to ask yourself, what biblical character would I like to model my life after? Whom would you choose? Apart from the Lord Jesus, of course. I doubt few Christians today would choose the prophet Elijah. They'd reason, well, he was a mighty prophet of God, and I certainly am not. He was a mighty worker of miracles, and I certainly am not. He had the, the mantle of supernaturalism all over his life, and I certainly do not. He is in another league all by himself. And yet we noted last time that James, James, remember, was nicknamed, as the church fathers tell us, old camel knees. That is, he spent so much time on his knees like a camel, they were calloused. And when the Holy Spirit of God gives him a letter to write the book of James in the New Testament, when he wants to choose someone to illustrate the greatness of a prayer life, he chooses Elijah the prophet. Why did he choose Elijah? Listen to his own words from James chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So when the Holy Spirit inspires the apostle James to describe Elijah the prophet, he doesn't say here, Elijah was a mighty prophet of God and he prayed. Or Elijah was a miracle worker and he prayed. Or Elijah was a, a model that no man could match and he prayed. No, he says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The ISV renders it, Elijah was a man just like us. The Net Bible says Elijah was a human being like us. The old King James says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was a normal, everyday human being cut out of the same piece of cloth that you are made from. He had problems. He had perplexities. He had fears. He had doubts. He had frustrations. But what made him uniquely different was that he was a man who knew how to pray. And so the epistle of James is explicitly teaching us that if Elijah is a man of like passions, 
then we, like Elijah, can learn to pray like he prayed. And in our passage this morning, we have an illustration of fervent, earnest prayer. And there's some timeless lessons that we can learn today. Now, the setting, if you're new, is right after his confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah. That's over, up there on the top of Mount Carmel. And we left off last time, if you were with me, in verse 40. But to help us to get a running start, I want to begin reading in verse 36. 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 36. Follow along in your Bibles. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. And a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab robed and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now, if you're using the note-taking outline provided there at our website, I want you to observe this morning three characteristics of Elijah's prayer life, which I hope God will weave into your life and to mine. First, I want you to note from verses 41 and verse 42, the passion of his prayer. When Elijah prayed, he prayed a passionate prayer and earnest prayer. God explicitly tells us in James 5:17 that that is the kind of prayer that he prayed. So when James says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, he illustrates it with Elijah the prophet. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly. Quite literally, if you have the New American Standard, which I think is one of the most precise and accurate translations of the English Bible, I prepare every week in the original languages, and I think there's not a better translation that's available to us. But if you look out in the margin of the NASB, you will notice it literally reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed in his prayers. I like that. He prayed in his prayers. You see, some of us pray, but we don't really pray. 
because we do not really pray in our prayers. We don't pray earnestly. We pray take it or leave it kind of prayers. We mouth words, but our hearts are far away. All of us at some point are guilty of those kinds of prayer. But for some people, that's the pattern of their prayer life. So how do you see God change that? How does God develop a passion and an earnestness in prayer? Well, first I want you to see the root, the root of his passion. Point A there on your outline, the root of his passion. Notice, if you will now, verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. That, my friend, is an incredibly confident statement that he makes here to King Ahab. Elijah said, go up, eat, and drink. Isn't that interesting? Go up, eat, and drink. He doesn't tell him to repent. Why? Because he knows the man's heart. He knows that he is wicked. He knows that he is no doubt probably confirmed in his unbelief. So he says, Go up and celebrate, Ahab, because this drought that is going on for three and a half years is about to end. Now, how did he know that? Well, according to verse 43 of our text this morning, there's not a cloud in the sky. And yet he just confidently said, there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. And so the curious, thoughtful reader of Scripture cannot help but ask, How can he make that statement if there's not a cloud in the sky? For the simple reason that the ear of faith recognizes things that you cannot see. He had a promise that he was clinging to. Remember Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, the ear of faith hears what God has promised. And so I want you to see that there is a relationship between what God promised and the passion that this man had in prayer. If you turn back in your Bible or it's on the same page in mine, the next page over, look at verse 40, uh, chapter 18 and verse 1. Look at chapter 18 and verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. God specifically says, I will send rain. Well, if God promised to send rain, then why in verse 42 is he crouched down before God in prayer? I mean, why pray at all? You mark it down big and plain and clear this morning that the vehicle of faith that translates God's promises into reality is prayer. Let me say that again. The vehicle of faith that translates the promises of God into reality is prayer. God not only ordains the end, God ordains the means. And that's a principle that runs all the way through both testaments of Scripture. Elijah is assured by God in verse 1, God says, I will send rain on the face of the earth, and yet he goes to God in prayer. It's very much like this statement that Jesus makes at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22:20, where he says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then all the inhabitants of heaven say, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And yet God promised through the prophet Isaiah as well, there's coming a day when the earth 
shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And yet, while God makes this promise through Isaiah and a number of prophets, and the Lord Jesus himself states it at the end of the Revelation, he taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The promise that Isaiah gave that is of a coming kingdom, literally, physically, actually on the earth, Jesus taught us to pray for that kingdom, and yet God says it's going to happen. He promises it. And so as seen in Elijah's case, God has promised for rain, but he wants Elijah the prophet to pray earnestly for it to happen. God wants us to take the promises that he has made and to turn those promises into prayers that they might come to pass. And so when you have a promise from God, prayer is not a a question of coming to God to try to convince him or to beg him or to somehow change his mind. It is something that he says he is going to do, but it needs to be claimed through prayer. We sing standing on the promises. Maybe we should sing kneeling on the promises of God. And really the root of any man or woman that you will find that is passionate and earnest in prayer is a man or a woman of God who knows the promises of God. Now, do you know why some are just dull and apathetic and ineffective in their prayer life? For the simple reason for many is they do not know their Bible and they do not know the promises that God has made. Now, it's difficult to say exactly how many promises God has made to the New Testament church. There's all these promise books that have come out for decades, and usually they number somewhere between 5,500 and 7,500 promises. But most of them, and the reason for the variance in the numbers is because a lot of the so-called promises that they are making have nothing to do with us. There are universal promises of God in prayer that apply for all of God's people in any age. But then there are promises that apply to a specific audience or to a specific person during a specific time. Now, I don't know exactly how many promises there are in the Bible, and I don't care to count them all up as somebody has done with several of these books. But I do know this, and by studying the Word of God in over 40 years that there are thousands of promises for God's people. With that said, we can't claim all of them. For instance, take Deuteronomy 29 and verse 5, that your sandals and clothes will not wear out. Let me read that. God said to Israel, to the people of Israel, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. In fact, Deuteronomy 8, 4 says their feet wouldn't even swell. Major question, is this a promise that if I have enough faith that somehow I can claim it? It's listed in most of the promise books. The fact is, it's not even a promise. It's just a statement of fact that God was going to do this for the people of Israel, period. But secondly, contextually, this statement was clearly made to the Hebrew people for a specific time frame, namely the years of wandering, 40 years in the wilderness, and it didn't apply when they got into the promised land, just for the time in the desert. Now, not all the promises found in the Bible are for you and for me to claim. For instance, could a, uh, a drought-plagued farmer 
take 1 Kings 18.1 and say, I'm going to believe God to send me rain. Here it is. You can't just open your Bible and stab your finger on some promise and say it's yours to claim. So how do we know which promises of God's word to claim? I've met a lot of Christians who are very careless in their study and in their interpretation of Holy Scripture. Christians across the board teach us that all the promises are for you and me to be claimed. And that's where the whole prosperity theology gospel comes from. Poor, sloppy, unfaithful, distorted exegesis of Scripture. Now, I'm sure there are some solid promise books out there. I just haven't found one yet. So if you found a good one that is contextually and historically accurate as it relates to the church, let me know because I've yet to see one. In either case, if you don't know how to claim a promise, you can become disillusioned or discouraged when you're trying to claim a promise and God doesn't seemingly respond. So let me share with you three guidelines that I think you must consider when you go to God in prayer if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth. First, number one, you must determine if the promise is personal or universal in scope. Is the promise personal or universal in scope? Now, some promises are meant for a particular individual or to a group of individuals, and they are meant for those people alone. For instance, God told Joshua that he wanted him to capture the city of Jericho. And once a day for six days, they were to march around the walls of Jericho. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around that wall seven times, blast the trumpets, and God promised he would just crumble the walls. Now, if you're a Christian military officer, I don't recommend that that's a promise for you to claim. Don't try to apply this strategy in overtaking the city because it's not yours to claim. That was not a universal promise. That was a specific promise. Or take another example, Mark 16 and verse 18. There Jesus said, they will pick up serpents and they will drink any, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, some Christians have tried to claim either a portion of that verse. Most are inconsistent. Occasionally, you'll find one who will try to claim the whole verse. For instance, let me quote from a Tennessee newspaper. The title of the article was, Two Preachers Die in a Test of Faith. Two preachers who had survived the bites of poisonous snakes tested their faith with, faith with strychnine and died a few hours after drinking the poison. Code County officers said the copperheads and the rattlesnakes were handled, handled at the religious service on Saturday night. After the snakes had been handled, Mr. Williams and Mr. Pack drank strychnine as a further test of faith based on a passage in the Bible which they called a promise they believed. Both died shortly thereafter. Friends, it can be dangerous to claim some passages out of context. But even the casual reader of Scripture would know that Mark 16, 18 has a conditional clause to it. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. It was a promise given to the apostles when persecuted and forced to do these things that God would protect them supernaturally. It does not warrant your handling snakes or trying to drink poison. And by the way, this is never modeled as something we should do in the book of Acts, nor is it ever commanded in any of the epistles. 
Why? Because when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you read the other synoptic Gospels and put it together with Mark 16, clearly it was a promise given to the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 tells us that not everyone can do signs, wonders, and miracles. There were certain signs, wonders, and miracles that authenticated a man to be chosen by Jesus to be one of his apostles. Uh, A good example of this kind of being lived out was Paul. Remember, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and uh, they were there, and uh, uh, a viper, a snake, crawled out of the fire and bit Paul in the hand, and he was unharmed. Here he is. He's, he's sharing in the love of God and warning people of God's care, and he takes a terrible experience, and he turns it upside down, and that's the perspective we need as Christians. When we are in dire times and difficult, we don't need to moan and groan and weep and, and, and just get all self-centered. We need to preach the gospel because that's the answer to the trouble in America. And so when you claim a promise, you have to determine, one, is the promise personal or is the promise universal in scope? Here's a universal promise that Jesus gave. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, there's a second principle I want us to consider when we try to claim a promise. We must also ask, is the promise conditional? For instance, here's a conditional promise that God gave to the Jewish people in Exodus 15, 26. Let me read it to you. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Now, that's not a universal promise. It's one given to the people of Israel, and contextually, it's time-bound again to the period of the wandering. But its fulfillment is conditioned on their obeying what God says. Now, there are other conditional promises that are universal in scope, that God will only answer if you meet the conditions. For instance, most of you know maybe 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a universal promise. And by universal, contextually, of course, he's writing to the little ones who have come to faith in Jesus. It's a conditional, universal promise given to born-again people. And by the way, 1 John 1, 9 is not a salvation verse used out of context by many pastors and evangelists. Listen, if all you had to do was confess your sin and God would forgive you, and that's what a lot of people think. You ask them, why should God let you into heaven? I've been sorry for my sin, and I've asked God to forgive me. Jesus could say, my Father is forgiving. Just be sorry, ask for forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. Could have skipped the cross and ascended right into heaven. But that's not what he does. God has to have a basis, a just basis by which he can shower forgiveness on you. And so if you have come to faith through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what the Bible calls the gospel, the power of God to save you, and then as a saved person, you acknowledge your sin, then not your relationship, which is eternal, but your fellowship with God is restored. When claiming a promise of God, 
We need to study and see whether that promise is universal. That is, does it apply to all? Then, is it conditional on our doing something? When we continue our message entitled, Elijah the Prayer Warrior, we'll see also that we need to see whether God's promise is qualified by another passage of Scripture. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order this message on CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI4. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Elijah as we search the scriptures.